communicating people that atrocities in the world could be communicated so people know what's happening and like that was a big right. part of his mission where was he in that past life i'm afraid to say because people will you know i his, let me ask him if he wants me to tell you hold on a minute do you want me to say it steve He says, I'm not ashamed anymore. I can deal with it. Are you sure? He says, yes. You got to accentuate the positive. Wow! I feel good. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just fad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? Fascinating conversation with Stephanie. We spoke for over two hours. I'm going to break it into two parts. We're going to focus on reincarnation and Stephanie's story, which will be the bigger section on the first video. And then we're going to go into Earth Changes, the future, what's happening, what's happening in the future, according to the Circle of Love and Steve and Thomas Jefferson and people she's chatting to through the portal of the Circle of Love in the second one. And there's some interesting things she says about people in that one, which I don't know will be able to be uploaded on all platforms. So I'll have it on uh, different platforms, Rumble and BitChute and Odyssey and all those different platforms that I'm on. G'day, g'day, and welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. Always a joy to present these shows for you today. And I've got the beautiful Stephanie Patel in the house with us on Zoom. Welcome, Stephanie. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I, I, I've got. I've been watching a few of your shows since I don't know when, long time, and oh. uh, I always thought what fun it would be to sit down and talk to Karen. <laughs> oh, you don't say well, Karen though, do you? You say Karen. There you go. Right? Thank you, Stephanie. Yes. <laughs> I know most Americans just think it's my cute Australian accent, the way I pronounce my name, but it's actually, yeah, Karen after the car body. But the gorgeous Cecil Carlson introduced us, who is a shaman and spiritual teacher, and she was a long-time member of our Inner Sanctum group and in Norway. And uh, she's like, oh, you have to meet my friend Stephanie. And as soon as I clicked on you, it's so funny, I looked at your face and I could see Cecil in you. There was an energy that was so familiar. And so there's a connection between the two of you. I saw that you put out a video on your YouTube channel recently, you and Cecil. Yeah. She's she's a wonderful woman. I mean, we just connected here in the last, I don't know, four or five months, but oh, she really gets it. <laughs> <laughs> she does. She does get it. She does. Everyone in my group gets it. And you've got such an extensive, whoa, you've got such an extensive story. Uh, I don't even know where to start, but we'll start with your bio. We'll read a little bit about you so people who haven't seen shows that you've done, because I see that you've done the rounds. You've been on a few shows, been on Jeff's show, the Jeff Mara podcast, and a couple of other uh, shows. So people might have uh, heard your story before. But born in a small village in Alaska in the 50s into a family of 15 children, Stephanie Patel who was named Dorothy after her mother at the time, was number nine in the series of children. 
At the age of three, Stephanie had an NDE after freezing in the Alaskan wilderness. When her mother caught her talking to Jesus and about heaven, she scolded her saying that she was talking to the devil. So Stephanie decided not to talk to spirit again until her college years when she had another NDE at the age of 20 after a suicide attempt. Stephanie went on to become an attorney. She had many unusual experiences over the years, juggling life as a busy attorney and mostly a single mother. Her primary desire was to figure out how to blend the two worlds, the lawyer, single mother dealing with life issues world and the deep and powerful spiritual side. After she retired from her career, she suddenly found herself in telepathic communication with individuals in spirit. And I want to know exactly how that happened, this suddenly telepathic communication. With a propensity for research, Stephanie continually sought evidence of what she was being told to satisfy her logical mind. Her primary correspondent identified himself as a man by the name of Steve Jobs. She continues to converse with him daily, as well as many other spirits, through a portal she calls the Circle of Love. The primary focus today in the circle of love is on the coming earth changes and what is really going on as humanity continually evolves. Stephanie is the creator of seven books, mostly which have come out this year in 2023. Put six of them out this year. I think first one was last year and then you've put, so they're channeled books, right, Stephanie? Sure. Mostly. There's a little bit of input for me, but they're primarily about 95% channel. Yeah, they've come through so quickly. Some are including Gale Force Winds, the Circle of Love book, which is about the mystery of mankind's origins, and Musical Chairs, a Circle of Love book. What's Musical Chairs about? Those five books came out in about four months, so let me remind myself of what Musical Chairs was about. I mean, they talked to me each day for hours, and I just record it. Mm -hmm. And then I would transcribe it and throw it into a book. So Musical Chairs, I believe, was about how we need to, there's a story. Can I quickly tell you the story about the tree in the field? Yeah. There's a story that was told to me by someone uh, in spirit. And he said, imagine a tree in the middle of a field. And you can look at it from any direction. You can look at it from close. You can look at it from far away, above, below, right, left, whatever. And you get a perspective on that tree. Now imagine that you are standing on one side of the tree and someone's standing on the other side and there are flowers growing beside the tree. And you say the flowers are on the left side and they say, no, they're on the right side. And you get into an argument about it. And you end up, that's how wars happen, you know, because people think they're right. They have to be right. They have one perspective. So we say, pick up your feet and move around the tree to get a different perspective on the tree. And to me, the profundity of this story, I mean, it just struck me as so profound. I just, to this day, I think it is, is that there's an infinite number of points of view on that one tree, like the blind men around the elephant. And no one point of view, this is the important part to me, precludes any other. So, you know, you could have an infinite, and, and instead of the blind men around the elephant, I think of it as the 8 billion people around the earth. 
And if they don't share, if they don't walk around and get a different point of view, the they're like the blind men who all just think the elephant is a rope because they've got hold of the tail. Yeah, you know, I think that um, the points of view about religion and what God is and who God is and how it dovetails with who we are as humans, I think that could, um, perspectives around that could be more in coherence with each other around the world. Everyone's got a different idea about that, who's God's right and who's God's wrong. And it's, anyway, it's interesting. Now, Stephanie does have a website, stephaniepatel.com, but it's not up to date. So her, Stephanie and I were just discussing before we clicked the recording that maybe if you're a tech-savvy person, it's a Wix website, which is pretty easy. Uh, she says that she doesn't have time to update it. If you ha- would like to help, to volunteer, to help Stephanie, she could give you a free reading or something like that. That would be great. So to get the website up to date, um, really websites are like calling cards. You can read people's story on there and find their books and it's just a way to connect with Stephanie. But at the moment, she's connecting uh, through Facebook. Not everyone is on Facebook. So having a website is a good way for people to connect with you if you're not on Facebook. Yeah. How's that sound, Stephanie? That sounds great. <laughs> really wonderful. So should we go into your story? I know that you want to focus on earth changes and uh, what's happening now with the evolving human race. But it'd be great to just go through your story a little bit. Do you remember what happened to you at three or have you been told since what happened to you when you had the NDE? Like, why did it happen to a three-year-old? Oh, yeah. It's all connected very, very intricately, (laughs) very intricately. These aren't just random things. It's the consistency and the synchronicity is amazing. But when I was three... I didn't remember what had happened because I had no context, of course. I was three, and I lived with a mother who was very, very Catholic. So I always knew something had happened. And people, you know, in the family from stories, I knew that it was amazing that I didn't die. So I knew that much. My father started, who was a writer, started out to write a story about it, but only... One page has survived. He died when he was 42. What I remember the most from that time as I was growing up was the temper tantrums that I would throw. I would just lay on the floor and cry and cry and cry. People would step over me. My heart was just broken. And my mother and I never got along. I think she always, well, she says, when I talked to her in heaven, she says she hated me. I didn't see it that way. I just thought, that I mean, I've heard lots of stories since then that I didn't know about how she kind of obstructed my path. But she told me never to talk about it, and she slapped me once for talking about it. So I'm only a little kid, and and my dad stepped in and said, "Hey, you know, don't do that to her again. From now on, it's just between me and her." But my dad died when I was nine, so I have a little bit of a memory of it but mostly not. I just remember the circumstances surrounding it. And of course, after that start, I was never going to talk about it or think about it again because I was either crazy or the devil had me. And all the time I was growing up, I kind of felt like my mother was just waiting for me to go off the deep end. (laughs) Just like, just waiting. And I didn't, I didn't really know why because I didn't have the whole story then. 
So it was when you were 20 and you had the second NDE that you kind of, well, I suppose you got the message that maybe it might be all right to speak about what you were experiencing. Well, what happened when then? I was 20, I, I did try to kill myself after some very difficult, very difficult times. I just gave up. Um, and I there was no context then either. It was 1970. I'd never heard of a near-death experience, right? And so I didn't even connect the two, actually. I just knew I died and came back. I mean, it, and I wasn't going to think about it. I was not going to think about it because I didn't want to be crazy. And uh, what was significant about it was I always knew I died and came back. But like I said, there was no context. And so I didn't know what to make of it. Um, nobody else that I read about or heard about had ever that had happened to them. Um, but there was a very clear message that I got, which is don't try it again. You'll just have to come back and do it over. You'll just have to come back and do it over. The other important thing is that I came back and I understood that I had changed my name to Stephanie. Since then, some memories have come back, but you know, it's it's like all recovered memories, you know, how much of it is consistent with what you would have remembered right at the moment and how much is metaphorical or something about what's going on. And in a way it all is because I understand that these near-death experiences are really, they differ, and I trust on this, they differ according to what the soul needs for its own journey. So my particular story uh, had to do with that. And I remember the doctor came in the next morning and he was followed by a bunch of interns. I just had some kind of memory of having wandered around the hospital, <laughs> my hospital. Now. And I, I didn't want, I was so embarrassed by that idea. I didn't realize what was going on. I was just wandering around the hospital. And so when he came in, he said, do you want to know what happened last night? I said, no. <laughs> Do not tell me I was so embarrassed because he had all these interns there and they're all kind of, and then they all kind of grinned. And I was like, oh my God, they know. So I didn't want to hear anything about it. And I just, other than the fact that I had died and come back, knew it, changed my name, knew I shouldn't try it again. I didn't know if, if it was like you went into a different dimension or anything because I was very agnostic by that time or atheistic after having uh been raised as a Catholic and, and just not buying into it. So it was pretty strange. So when you said you were wandering around the hospital, were you wandering around the hospital in your body or in an astral body? Like were you out of your body when you were wandering around? Or Well, I must have been because I don't think I was wandering around physically. But I in my mind, because I had just woken up, you know, when he comes in, I'd just woken up out of wherever I'd been. And he said that. And I said, no, I don't want to know. Oh, I see. Uh, because so, in my mind, people would have seen me, you know. Yeah, I see. Right. Okay. So so you must have popped out of your body when your poor old body was wheeled into hospital. You were wandering around. So you stayed on the earth plane, so to speak. You weren't you didn't flip off to another dimension or no, I went warrior. off to other dimensions, so I'm sure, oh, but Oh, but you don't remember. Yeah, but like I said, I at that point I was like, I don't want to know about it. I don't want to think about it. You guys already think I'm crazy. Mm-hmm zip mm -hmm. and i wouldn't even think about it if i started to think about it i would just think a different way yeah 
So did they give you any sort of counselling at the hospital? Usually after suicides, they they make you see uh, No. No? No. That's interesting, in the 70s. So I did see a psychiatrist after that, or maybe he was, um, he was, a, you know, it was a college university. It was a university hospital. Mm-hmm. So he might have been in training, and he said to me, do you, um, I can't remember. He just chatted with me, and he mm-hmm. said, you ever planning on doing that again? I said, no. He said, okay, you're you're good to go. <laughs> And that was the end of it. That's a joke. Um, but I so when I was talk- 28, everything came back. When I was 28 oh. is when everything came clear. At 28, I just had what people call a spiritually transformative experience. And suddenly I just, it was like a huge download. There was a, there was an incident that went on at that time. I popped out of my, you could say popped out of my body, but really what, how I saw it was I split into three parts. From that moment, I never doubted. I, like I said, I was agnostic or atheist. You know, I, as I say, I didn't use the word God except in vain. And uh, and so I didn't have words for these parts. I called it the puppet, the puppet master, and the eye, the, the awareness, the seeing. And uh, I was aware of everything that was happening, but I was not in, I was not the puppet. I was not in my body. I was just watching I was watching the body being manipulated by what I called the puppet master, which was this force that was just so powerful and loving and everything. You know, it's the whole love thing that people report where you just feel unconditionally loved. You just feel, you know, it lasts for months and months. And then I got this download of, I call it a download. And I just understood everything at that moment. And I was like, wow. How come I didn't know this before? It's as easy as falling off a log. How come I didn't get it before? And then when I I was like, why doesn't anybody else get it? I couldn't I couldn't figure out actually why other people didn't understand this. And I, as a friend of mine just said after her experience, I never doubted that there was a God after that. And I didn't, I don't. I I trust that we're all part of God energy that we're all part of it, but there is, but I also trust on both because I trust on the duality of everything, that there is a personal relationship and there is kind of an objective reality of God energy that flows through everything. So how did that knowing help you as, as you went, you know, through life as a single mom and working as an attorney, what sort of law did you practice? I practiced a variety. Towards the end, it was criminal defense work and family law. Okay, family law like divorce and stuff like that. Divorce, child custody, things like that. And criminal defense. So you would have seen a lot of trauma in your career, people hating each other, people trying to kill each other. I did. And how did that knowing help you during your career? Well, first, I have to say, from the time I was a child, and I suppose it was because of what happened to me when I was three, I just knew some things. There were some things I just knew. I just knew them in a way that other people didn't. And one was that everybody was good. I just knew everybody was good. I just knew everybody was good, but they could be very, very confused. So I never thought, hated anybody or just, you know, thought that they were, I I didn't believe in good and evil from the time I was little. And uh, and so I'd even been raped a number of times uh, growing up. But 
to me, it, I brought it back to myself. I was like, okay, what's this for me here? It was very, very tough, which is part of the reason I ended up trying to kill myself, but along with other things, but it was very tough, but I, I never wanted them to be hurt, if that makes sense. It, I wasn't out for vengeance at all. I was just, why do they behave that way? That was my question. Why do they behave that way? And so that became a lifelong search for me, I guess. Why do people behave the way they do? What What's missing? What are they not understanding about each other? Yeah. So when I was practicing law, I just saw things the same way. But I was always like, why someone would come in and say, we fell out of love. And I was like, how do you fall out of love? Love is love. <laughs> no, you don't fall out of it. Something you blocked something and I'm not saying you can't leave them, but can't you love them and leave them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. When I speak to my friends, family, clients, you know, this whole concept of love, like you fall in and out of love. I'm like, love is not negotiable. Love is who you are. You're a lover. And then you decide who you want to be with. So Sometimes you want to be with different people. Sometimes there's a different intent. You know, you have different intentions, right. but love is not negotiable. Love, it just is. Yeah, this whole concept of, you know, we're falling in love, this whole romance matrix that we've created in this world, it's all BS, really. <laughs> love is love. So that's fascinating that you saw everyone as inherently good, just that their behavior wasn't. So when you retired, and you suddenly had telepathic communication. What, what was happening to you at the time to sort of have this sudden experience? Karate was very important to me. I studied it for many years. And when I was studying it, there was something about the study of karate that would just, I don't know, it would just open up this vein of knowing. And it would be very dramatic at time. Like I would know that my kids needed me and I would stop what I was doing, no matter what it was, even in inconvenient and run to one kid or the other. It was always the kid that needed me was injured um, and different things like that. Many different things, but I would back up from, from uh, I actually associated it with practicing karate because there was something about it centering and dealing with your energy or something. And I would always back away from practicing because it made me feel too different from other people around me. So when I read, and I felt like I had two worlds and I couldn't bring them together. I had my everyday world practicing, taking care of kids. I started a school too for kids falling through the cracks at one point. And so it was, uh, it, I just couldn't bring those worlds together. So when I retired, I thought, oh good, I don't have to do that anymore. But I wasn't interested in the phenomena. What I was interested in was peace and harmony and finding peace. And I'd had a difficult life. I, I, I lost a couple of children along the way. I died. And, uh, of course, my father died when I was nine with my 11-year-old brother. And so I'd, I'd had many traumas along the way. Um, and I just wanted to, I wanted to tie up all my ends in this lifetime, I was one of those people that didn't want to come back. I was like, I have to finish up all my issues so I don't have to come back here because it's hard. And so when I retired, I thought, oh, good. Now I can just focus on my own spiritual development. 
And so I did. And and I, I'm sure you know what A Course of Miracles is, A Course of Miracles. I have been a student of that for like 25 years, and I have some dramatic stories about that. But the whole, my whole understanding of A Course of Miracles is letting go of preconceptions of everything that you think and just taking life as it comes, you know? And so one day I said, I'm done with A Course of Miracles. I have to put that away. I have to let go of that. If I'm going to let it go of everything, I have to let go of the book. So I did. I was pretty unhappy then at that point because I was retired. I had moved from Alaska to North Dakota because in October of 2011, I got a clear message. I needed to leave and go to North Dakota. So within four months, I had found a house in North Dakota and, and uh, was kind of going back and forth while I was retiring. Um, and so October of 2011 was when Steve Jobs died. Anyway, I didn't know anything about him. I had no clue. So I, and I had no clue why I changed my name to Stephanie. And uh, both those near-death experiences involved connections. I said to myself, you know, the kids are all having problems. All my kids are having issues. <laughs> it's just keeping me preoccupied. It's taking up all my money to help them and et cetera. And all my retirement's going out there, and my grandkids were living with me while my daughter was getting settled somewhere. And it was quite chaotic. And I said, there's nothing in this world for me. And I can't kill myself because I would not harm, harm the physical form of the body. So what can I do? And I said, the only thing I can do is give up my ego. And that was a very pivotal moment for me. It was like, if you give that up, you just give up any stake in the world. And what happens? I don't know what happens. But it was like, for me, I'd already had the experience of joining with God energy, if you like. So I said, and I had that experience when I was 28. That was still so powerful. Probably the most powerful experience in my life. I said, I want to give up my ego and just join with God energy. There's nothing more in life that I can get out of it. And uh, it was not very long after that, a couple days. And I woke up one morning and Thomas Jefferson, believe it or not, is standing at the foot of my bed. Now, I'd had some telepathic conversations with the other side, family, and a few people had come to me back in the day to connect with people and I'd help them connect. But it was still very you know, not something that I really engaged in. And I wasn't really that interested in it. It was just a little curiosity. So he's standing there and I'm pretty shocked. And he said to me some things. And the thing that I most remember him saying was that I was a favorite slave on his plantation and that I was free. And I was like, free from what? <laughs> I had no clue. Although I always liked, you know, studying. And when I was studying, I always liked the idea of Thomas Jefferson, and of course, I became an attorney as he was. And then, I don't know, a few days later, a week later, there were some things that happened before this that were very important, but a few days or a week after, I decided, I, it was just kind of a whim. I had a cup of coffee, and, and these whims, oftentimes you have to wonder where they come from, right? And so I had a whim to sit down at the computer and uh, which I I had my what I call my dungeon in the basement. It actually is a well finished room, so it's 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 a nice dungeon. But I worked down there, and I had other family members living with me, so it was away from them. 
And I sat down there one day with a cup of coffee. I said, I wonder if I could talk to somebody in spirit. Because I've been listening to some videos and stuff while I'm working. And so I said, who would I like to talk to? And one person came into my mind. And the reason he came into my mind, I thought, although now I understand that that all the, my friends in spirit were working very hard to get me to figure it out, was that uh, I had, I didn't know him, but I had read an article when he died that he saw something that made him go, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. So I said, I wonder what he saw. I'd like to talk to him. I mean, of all the people to want to talk to, wouldn't you want to talk to somebody that's, you know, exalted or something? But I said, I want to talk to him, find out what he saw. <laughs> and so I said, I'd like to talk to you. And boom, he was there. And I said, well, how do I know this is you? And he said, well, I'll give you some things you can look up about me. And since I knew nothing about him, um, he gave me three things, which could e I, the first two I could easily find. And the third one I did find later. Um, and so he, I said, fine. And then I, I, I guess I wasn't really buying into it. I said, even though it was very clear and I was typing up everything as it was said, I said, I'm going to get up and go, or I just uh, decided to get up. I was done with my coffee, go upstairs and, and do the dishes. And I did. And he went with me and he's still talking yakety, 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 yak. And this went on. I mean, I, I, well, it's gone on for eight years, but it went on. For weeks nonstop, he would wake me up in the middle of the night to talk to me. And I'm like, what's going on? Why are you talking to me? I'm a nobody. You know, why do you want to talk to me? Do you have a message for me to pass on or something, you know? And he just keep talking. And I went through a lot at that point, trying to uh, figure it all out. He keep giving me validations. I have a storehouse of validations. because, Like I said, I research everything. Um, uh, there are other mediums who have brought him through for me when we were together that are very, very precise and very, very clear. You know, there's a man here and he's telling me that, da, 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 da. And so there's at least, well, I know there's many, but there's four, five mediums that I can think of that have brought him down and through in great detail, um, all confirming our relationship. Uh, some of what you call little miracles and stuff. Go ahead. Uh, I know it, we could go on and on about proving that it's Steve Jobs. You don't have to prove it to me because I can feel him just before when you were talking. I'm wearing all black today. I never wear all black usually. <laughs> I'm wearing all black today. Sort of like it's really weird. And before I felt his energy and his intellect. He's like he had such a fast mind and a sharp intellect. And I felt that and I was like, whoa, what am I feeling? Yeah, so I could feel him here. But what I want to ask you is, what did he see when he saw, when he went, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. When you asked him, what did you see? What did he say to you? This is where it gets really, really weird. And with all the validations I've had and everything, it kind of gives background. I just want to say that. And I did like a thousand sessions for people to bring through their loved ones. And every time they go, yeah, yeah, you know, he's telling you, she's telling me that you have something under your shirt. It's a little heart that has to do with him. So, oh, you mean this necklace? <laughs> you know, so it was all kinds of validations, always how they died, uh, things like that, things they would say, and uh, sometimes names. And so through those thousand validations, I began to feel more confidence just in myself, which I needed. 
but we also, Steve and I had so many validations. But when I asked him that, he kind of fudged on it. And I just let it kind of go because I don't know, it was, I was still, you know, in the early stages of it. And then I kind of forgot about it and I just let it go. I just figured he'd seen something like I'd seen when I was 28, you know, cause you're on your deathbed. So, okay, this is where it gets really, really weird. He didn't tell me this for years cause he knew I would, I would freak out. He said, I saw you. Well, we, I had seen him during my near-death experience when I was 20 and also when I was three. When I was three, he was not born yet. He was getting ready to come into his identity. His, and he already had his identity, but he was getting ready to be born in a year or so. Uh, this story gets really bizarre. And uh, when I was 20, so I connected with him 20. I said, Steve, I'll be coming for you. And uh, you need to look for me. And look for me where it's cold, south of north, because I was living in North Dakota then, and and then I went to Alaska. And uh, then, uh, like recently, he just told me, and I said, I don't even remember that. I mean, I can remember uh, when we were talking about it, some sort of memories of kind of astral journeys and stuff. And I connected with a medium about a month after we started, and I worked with her for six or seven months, and she would validate everything. First, they'd tell me something, and then it would come out of her mouth, and she'd say other things. And she was like, you know, you're the two of you have been working uh, on a soul basis on this lifetime and, in, of course, other lifetimes. And he said, I was laying there, and you said to me, he said, I just saw your vision of you. And you reached out your hand to me and you said, just close your eyes and go to sleep. And when you wake up, everything will be okay. And you have to find me. So I, he didn't tell me this at first either because I didn't think he didn't want to, because it was hard for me at the beginning to absorb all this. He didn't tell me that he was earthbound. And he was earthbound for four years, between 2011 and 2015, until we connected. Well, actually, a little longer than that. And that's why he wouldn't leave, because, well, that's one of the reasons he wouldn't leave, because he was so desperate after four years. He said, I asked him one day, I said, four years since you died, because I didn't know he was earthbound. I didn't know all these concepts. I had no clue. All I knew was I'm talking to some guy who's died. And we seem to get along okay, even though I wouldn't have liked him when he was alive. We're still getting along okay. And so I was like, um, you know, I couldn't understand why why he kept hanging around me and talking to me. What was our connection? He told me we were twin souls about, it was about a weekend. And I said, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this. And I wrote a friend and I said, I that knew about it. And I said, I just can't do this anymore. I don't want to be crazy. And he got really adamant. And he said, I am Steve Jobs. I am Steve Jobs. And I'm going to prove it to you. He said, don't you remember we were twin souls when we got pulled apart? How painful it was. And I said, no, I didn't even know anything about the concept. But I looked it up and it's clear that we have about the same intellect, etc. Um, and other things with the same hand, fingers, uh, different, lots of different things. He was earthbound for four years. 
before he came to me. And that's why he couldn't bear to leave me because I said, you know, what's four years in heaven? A few days? He said, thousand years. And I, at the time, I couldn't figure it out. Well, it was a thousand years for him because imagine wandering around the face of the earth and nobody can hear you. Here you are, this big stuff. You can't walk down the street and people aren't snapping pictures of you. And suddenly you're nothing. Nobody can see you. Nobody can hear you. He said it was like being in hell. And he didn't know what was going on. He didn't know. There was a reason he couldn't move on. But anyway, he didn't. It all kind of fits together in a very intricate way. But he said that he was so miserable. And he kept thinking that if he could find me, that it would solve his problems. But he, for some reason, there was something in his mind. I guess he wasn't ready spiritually to connect with me. And finally, when, when I said, hey, Steve Jobs, I want to talk to you, he said, I heard you like that because you can hear everything. Every time your name's called in spirit, you can hear it. And he said, I ran so fast, I outran my past and burned the grass, you know. <laughs> um, so he was right there. But he didn't want to leave me because, for one thing, uh, he was so lonely. And we talked and got along. And he said, I laughed so much when we would talk. He said, it was so rewarding to me. I mean, I could even talk. He could even talk to you right now and tell you his perspective on it. But it was so rewarding to be able to laugh with somebody again. And then about two years after we connected, he did take his energy back to heaven. And uh, he said that, and so when he was around, I didn't know this, but because he still was so close to the earth vibration, it was why he was able to interact so much with the physical realm. Like he would do things that would uh, be an interaction with, with just the world. You know, he'd leave an apple somewhere for me or uh, help me find things that I had lost or get on my computer and pull something up, you know, and a really dramatic thing, which I've told before about the key, when he moved a key from upstairs in my bedroom down by the door. Um, so when he got there, I was like, he's like, Steph, I'm so happy now. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters anymore. And I said, okay, well, then I'll back off because I just want you to be happy. And if you're happy, I'll leave you. A little bit later, he's back and he said, well, I figured out. What I realized was I have to go back to earth like everybody does. And uh, I can't stay here blissful forever. And so I need to stay connected to you because I want to go back to earth with you. You know, <laughs> it's time to go back. So I don't. So I became kind of paranoid through the years, I guess. And he he would never leave me alone. He was very controlling. And we've been up and down, up and down, up and down about it. So that kind of. I don't know. What questions do you, does that raise for you? A stack of questions. I heard you say in another interview that of all the interviews and the information that you sent me, the one thing that stuck out for me was that um, you said that you had a past life in Auschwitz and that he designed, his mission as his life as Steve Jobs was to design the iPhone so that people could connect because when you were in Auschwitz, you know, this atrocity was going on in the world, but for the most part, the world didn't know about it until after the war, like nobody knew about it. So if there was a handheld device where you could take video and photos and communicate with people, 
that atrocities in the world could be communicated so people know what's happening and like that was a big right. part of his mission where was he in that past life i'm afraid to say because people will you know I, he, let me ask him if he wants me to tell you hold on a minute do you want me to say it steve He says, I'm not ashamed anymore. I can deal with it. Are you sure? He says, yes. His name was Rudolf Huss. He was the commandant of Auschwitz. So he was one of the uh, SS that was running Auschwitz in that yeah, past he life. The, yeah, he's renowned for having presided over the death of, I don't know, one to two million people. And you were one of the inmates in Auschwitz. So fascinating, isn't it? So interesting. Yeah, so this it's like... story with, this story is very, very well developed. Very well developed. It should be a movie, definitely. All this definitely. should be a movie, but should be a movie. When I was listening to you before on another podcast when Cecil asked me to connect with you. I was thinking about you and him and and how you could be this, you know, part of the same soul group. And and it just dawned on me that how obvious it would be that you would lead such different lives because you don't come into a life to repeat it all again. You come in to have variety, like the good and the bad. I'm going to experience the good. I'm going to experience the bad. Like I want to experience the gamut of what it is to be human. So that totally makes sense that same soul group experiencing the polarity of that situation one the commandant and one the inmate well there yeah we 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 knew each other i mean we didn't we knew each other in auschwitz but not before but apparently my in that lifetime which i've heard a lot about my mother Let's see, my mother, my father in that life was Polish. He was Jewish, but he renounced his his uh, association with with it. And he moved to England where he met my mother, who was the daughter of a German woman and an English man. And he brought her back to Poland. He changed his name. She was a Catholic. He had told, changed his name so it was no longer had from something wise, something to Wagner. And so it no longer had that uh, Jewish connotation. And she registered the whole family in the Catholic diocese. So he was not targeted as a Jew. But I was young at that time. And, and being the way I am, I got caught up in the resistance. I don't know that I had a big part in it. You know, just passed messages on from somebody who wanted me to take them somewhere. But I got caught up because I was fingered by a neighbor who disliked me for reasons that I won't get into an old woman. And I was beaten in that lifetime and died. And I had a near-death experience. And when they found I was still awake uh, or alive, after they thought I was dead, after beating me to death, um, because they were Catholics, they were kind of freaked out about it, that I could still be alive, and they thought maybe it was something God wanted, so they didn't know what to do with me. This is fairly early in the war, so they sent me to Auschwitz, and my mother, whose mother was German, 
So she uh, was related to his wife. And so she wrote a letter. They, my parents wrote a letter to her and said, is there any way you can intervene? Now, this is fairly early in the war before they've actually started the gassing. or They're just almost to the experimental stage. And, uh, and so she notified her husband and he found me. And uh, he said he knew, you know, I was a relative and of his wife. And so he took me as he did with people. I researched all this. He took me to work for him. So I was out of the, the basic camp. But because it's Steve and because we have this soul energy, uh, we actually became lovers. And... Uh, and then I found out about Dr. Uh, Klauberg, who at that time was not at Auschwitz, but they were communicating. And he eventually came to Auschwitz to sterilize Jewish women. And so I tried to get the message out of the camp by giving it to somebody. And he got caught and he ratted me out. And uh, and so then he had to do something with me. So he put me in isolation and he brought in, he actually said, I just want her in isolation because I want to get the information out of her, you know. But the guards were pissed at, at me because of something I said. So they beat me until my legs were broken. I was really pretty beaten up. I was actually pregnant at that point, beaten up. And he had another girl that I knew from, Warsaw when we were school children that had was Jewish and had been brought in because she had escaped from the ghetto and got caught and she'd been brought in. She was also pregnant. And he had her put her in the same room with me, which was often an isolated area or kind of where the they tortured people, I think. And uh, he uh, said, I I want her to be with her because, you know, it'll make her feel more comfortable and then I'll be able to get information out of her. So that was kind of his ruse, keep me alive. Only I was badly beaten and and and, uh, and he'd come over occasionally and check on me and, and see if I was ready to beg his forgiveness or whatever. And I was so stubborn, I wouldn't. And uh, so eventually somebody said, to me it was somebody said to me at one point some guy he said see that building over there he said if you go in there you won't come out because the people that go in there that they take in there don't come out so that's where they were doing the initial experiments with the poison gas right so we stole some clothing from male prisoners which wasn't hard to do because they were just dropping like flies and you know and and we just go people were always stripping their clothes off them to get extra clothes so we got some male uh, uniforms. And then when we saw that they were taking some people over there, we got into our those clothes and my legs had been splinted, I guess, but it was still very painful. But she helped drag me and somebody else did too. And we just kind of, we were shaved. So we were kind of, uh, they couldn't tell. And so somehow we got in there and we were gassed and died. But what you need to know is that Rudolf Huss confessed, and at the end, he wrote his memoirs in prison. He was hung at in the Nuremberg trials, but he wrote his memoirs in which he 
took responsibility, you know, for what he did, or at least he was following orders. He was not a cruel man at all. You know, he wasn't somebody that hurt the prisoners or even liked it, liked his job. He just uh, was caught up in the war machinery like everybody else and had a family with little kids. So I died and then he died after that. And then we got together in the afterlife and plotted out this lifetime. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I can see how it all works. I can see how it all works. Ah, I was well, here's a funny tidbit. These little synchronicities that come up all the time, all the time. Mm-hmm. His he was Thomas Jefferson's brother because Thomas, I, and Steve all share an energy. But his name in that lifetime was Randolph. So he went from Randolph to Rudolph. <laughs> There's these little synchronicity synchronicities that come up over and over and over again. And these lifetimes that like little clues, you know? Yeah. I remember I had a someone. I had a past life that was quite significant and um, I didn't know who I was or what my name was. And then I had a reader tell me and he said, oh, you were Paul. And I said, that makes sense because I've got a brother and a father that's Paul. And yeah, and that, that's that synchronicity, like a brother and father as Paul, like, duh. Anyway, um, I had this guy when I first started on radio about 14 years ago, I had this guy that I used to get on. He was a personal growth coach you know healer whatever American guy living in Australia and I used to get him on to sort of do a little bit on the show and then he offered me one of his courses to come and do one of his courses for free and I really didn't like the way he was working with people I thought it was barbaric and old-fashioned and he saw my he saw that I was upset and he said well you can leave if you like and I remember thinking to myself well, I, I, you offered this to me, so there's no you know, coincidence in life. I'm here to experience something for a reason. I'll stay. And one of the things was that you lie on the ground and people prod you and, and make you uncomfortable and painful, actually, and, and then you scream and you brings out your trauma, you know, like, like and, so, and beating things with your anger, like old-fashioned stuff, you know, like screaming and beating stuff and getting your anger out and all that sort of thing. I didn't agree with that. Right. But I fell into a past life and I remember one of the people facilitating me said, oh, she's in a past life. But it wasn't my past life. It was his past life. (laughs) And And he was one of the scientists in one of the camps that used to experiment on people and torture people. But again, I saw the curious mind rather than the monster, like the scientist wanting to know the answers and not really caring that he was hurting people and then in this life he had come back as this life coach and he was kind of doing it again but the intent was to heal and to help humanity it was so fascinating it was so interesting and I suspect that uh that was a bit the same with what was his name in the past life uh I don't know how you spell it because it's German of course it's h-o-e-s-s Right. He was, I don't know what his rank was, but he was the commander of the whole commander. camp. Right. But he wasn't so he the doctor. Had, he, he, had a, he, he had been raised as a Catholic and he actually at one time considered going into the priesthood. Huh? And then, I mean, he had a rough life. And then uh, he was fingered uh, in the early days, uh, you know, in the 30s, probably, or 20s even. There was a guy that got killed. It was when... Germany was reorganizing after World War One, 
and there was a guy killed. There were different factions, you know, and his group, apparently his group had killed him because of something that he had done. Mm-hmm. And Rudolph was not involved, but he took the rap because he would not tell on these others. And so he got thrown in a notorious prison. It was notorious by then. It was the Nazi, a Nazi uh, prison in Germany. I don't remember where. It was so horrible. He said he just wanted to die, kill himself many times. So he was in there as a fairly young man for a couple of years. And I think that took a toll on him. And then he, um, you know, he was at that time, you know, a lot of idealistic young people were in the Nazi party. Uh, a lot of them, the workers party, uh, mm-hmm. even, you know, because they saw working together and they'd work on farms and stuff where he met his wife and, and they were idealistic people. But then you yeah. get caught up in the machinery because you're, as he says, it's not that I was a bad person. It was that I was a stupid one. It was my life to be stupid and see how, see how easily you could be caught up because he says, I used to always wonder how people could get caught up in this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so that was my lifetime to understand it. And so he just, you know, went along with the program. And when he was assigned there, he took the job. And after I died, he, uh, he said he, he went and got some bullets for his gun because he didn't even carry bullets in his gun. And he went out back where they were doing some renovation on the camp. And he put a gun to his head and he was going to kill himself. This is his story that he tells. And he says, then you came in front of me. You appeared in front of me and you said, Rudolph, don't do it. If you do it, you will never have a chance to redeem yourself. Mm. And so he put the gun away. He got mad at me one day. He said, God damn it, Steph, if you hadn't come to me, I would have killed myself. And then I wouldn't be responsible for all those deaths. <laughs> I was like, well, anyway, he uh, he went through that lifetime. And, and in the end, he, uh, one of the few that, I don't know if any others did, uh, the Nazis who, well, they were, uh, who had time to sit down and reflect on their life and what he could have done differently. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that he wanted to know what that experience was like. How do people get caught up in that? How can you get caught up he in a... Some, he had some very, very strong lifetimes in the past. Yeah. Who's Marcus Aurelius? Marcus Aurelius. And others, I won't tell you the names, but some other powerful, because there's a certain group and they are very intelligent. And there's a certain reason why they keep coming back and playing these big roles. And of course, he played a big role in this life. And Thomas played a big role. He was Thomas Jefferson. And then he came back right away as Thomas Edison. But Thomas has always been kind of scientific minded. And uh, and so whenever I have questions about anything scientific, like what's going on in the world, I go to Thomas. I say, Thomas, will you explain this to me? And he says, yes. And he talks to me about it and tells me things that I have no clue about. So I go research it. And it always makes sense after I research it. So Thomas Jefferson, was Steve Jobs' past life or just a part of his soul group? No, no, no. The way they've explained it to me, and I have to trust on this after everything that's gone on, and... I have to say this to you because of my background in the spiritual realm. I'm kind of an Alan Watts, Byron Katie kind of a perspective where it's all a story. These are our stories, but they're what we got is that um, we are kind of a rare configuration of uh, 
three uh, soul divided into three. Most are only divided in twice. Most uh, twin souls are just two, but we're a threesome. And so we're constantly um, reincarnating in some kind of a uh, unit in some way, whether friends, family, whatever. And uh, so Thomas and I had a lifetime as I was Sally Hemings, according to the story that I have, and I have a few memories. Um, and that actually was a very strong relationship. It was a very strong relationship. And then uh, I won't say how, but I met Thomas in this lifetime. And so you understand how intricate this is. When I was nine years old, my father died. We were living in Alaska then in a fishing village on the Kenai Peninsula. My mother's brother lived a mile from Steve, his family in California, in Mountain View, California. So my mother made plans to go there and stay with him. Uh, so this was one of the contact points at which we were to meet, right? And so she made plans to go there and stay with him while she was finding a, a house there because my dad wanted us to stay on the West Coast and not go back to North Dakota where she was from. And then apparently my father came to my uncle well, my uncle was uh, sleeping and he just had a very powerful dream. He said, you can't let Dorothy come. Dorothy was my mother. You can't let her come here because it will be bad for my daughter. And so he felt really bad about it, he said, but he told her that she couldn't come. Well, here's another odd wrinkle. Steve tells a story about a man that had a rock tumbler that taught him a big lesson. He talked about that when he was here in a couple different times, a videos. Um, and one day he said to me, you know, Steph, I know your uncle. And I said, no way, Steve. I mean, I've already looked up all the information. I know he lived just a mile from you. I have the letter my mother sent to him saying we were going to come there and everything was settled. So I have all that validation, but you didn't know him. He said, I did. He told me the story that one day he was riding on his bike past his house and he threw some trash on his yard. And my uncle, who was raised in North Dakota on a farm and was ex-military and a you know, mechanic, big, tough guy, comes out and said, hey, buddy, you know, pick up your trash. And Steve was kind of a smart mouth kid. So he said, why? What are you going to do to me? I don't. And so as it ended up, my uncle said, hey, come here, I'm going to show you something. And he took him into his garage and showed him this rock tumbler. And it became an important part of Steve's development, the idea that these rocks bumping up against each other, polish each other's edges off. And he's used it as an example, metaphor many times. And uh, so, you know, I had no way to validate that other than what Steve's telling me and the fact that he lives there. And uh, so, but I did talk to my uncle who's in heaven and he said, I, I didn't know that was Steve Jobs, which is some punk kid, he said, but I did have rock tumbler in my garage. And so figured that. But another thing he told me is that when I, I was, right after I moved to Alaska, I guess I was 30 and he would have been 25. I uh, went to California, my one trip at that time to California, my first trip and somewhere in LA or the vicinity, you know, it's just one big city to me. 
uh, we went there for a karate training and with some people and I'm in this room with them and they're talking and chatting. I think it was either at the dojo or maybe at the hotel. I don't know where it was, somewhere. And they're chatting away and I'm bored. And all of a sudden I get this feeling, that feeling that I have, I have to get out of here. I have to go right now. I have to go. It's the feeling I get when one of my kids was hurt and I just got up and I said, left. And they're all like, what happened to her? But I went down and I started walking and I got to this corner and I'm in the middle of a city. I'm a small town girl. I mean, like really small. And I'm standing at this corner with cars going by, whizzing by, right? And uh, and I remember this very well. And I'm standing there and some guy in a car starts staring at me. And I'm like, oh my God, who does he think I am? Does he think I'm a streetwalker or something? And I hurried away. And I remember it, but I, that was all I knew about it. And Steve told me, he said, Steph, that was me. He said, I saw you standing there. Remember that you'd come to me and told me to look for me you know, when you died at one time. He said, I remembered you. I remembered what you looked like. And I saw you standing there. And I was like, I know her. I have to meet her. And he said, I drove on. I parked. And I came back running to look for you. And by then you disappeared. And uh, he said that he talked to somebody who apparently was also looking for me from my group and got some information about me. And he used that information to track down my telephone number, my ex-husband's telephone number in North Dakota. And he called him and the guy wouldn't give any information. He wouldn't give him any information about me. So he gave up. So that was another one. And then he told me another time, he said, do you remember that house that you lived in on Alder Street in Kenai, Alaska? And I'm like, you know, I can barely remember. It's been years and years. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure. It is brown house. or I can't remember if it was brown or time or blue. But anyway, and so he said, I had a friend that wanted me to go to Kenai, Alaska. He said, you have to come with me. You can catch these biggest king salmon in the world. And I have a friend up there and we can, he will help show us around. And Steve said, oh, no, I'm too busy. I can't go. So he said to me, you know, the friend that my friend knew lived across from you. And had I gone up with him, I would have seen you park your car and getting those groceries out of the car with kids and everything. And I would have rushed over to introduce myself, he said, but I didn't go. He said, but then he gave me, I couldn't remember that house or anything. He gave me some details and I haven't mentioned them to my son who was just a boy then, but you know how when you're little, you remember things? And he was like, oh yeah, that's true, that's true. And I was like, well, so there were all these points, I guess, at which we might have connected. But in this lifetime, you didn't meet him physically. You didn't meet physically. Yeah, interesting. Which is probably for the best, but no, <laughs> I, 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 he hates it when I say that, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I had a really rough life and he's always like, Steph, if, if, if we'd met, I could have taken care of you. You could have worked on your art and your books and stuff, instead of always being so frantic about trying to support those kids and work and stuff. And I was like, well, whatever it was, it was the way my life went. It's over now. Well, your life isn't over, but you maybe your traumas are over. Uh, well, it's interesting that you talk about this soul group, this soul split into three. You know, I believe that some people come into the earth experience to have this personal 
evolution and some people come in to affect change globally like the politicians and the rock stars and the spiritual teachers and the you know technicians and the scientists and so on and um i think that probably up until this time 8 years ago you were affecting people's lives personally but maybe this connection with steve is more of a global thing uh, i mean the the way that you said that he said that his lifetime and this lifetime was affect to affect change through the iphone that really spoke to me because that has been a global experience i mean the iphone has changed life on planet earth really it has though well that, that part of it and the internet and all of that together yes yeah uh, well the internet has definitely shifted life on planet earth but to carry that around in your pocket you know not many people carry their laptops or their computers around in their pocket but the iphone gives you that ability to be you know to have the internet to be online to be connected like that wherever you are yeah fascinating fascinating another thing i wanted to ask you was you said that you lost a couple of children in this lifetime is that right two was yeah. it two children have you spoken to them in spirit oh yeah well, my son, I do. My son died when, when he was uh, 23. And he is actually the reincarnation of my brother who died when he was 11. Hmm. And then my daughter died at birth. And and, and uh, I don't think that we had a extensive past life history. So for us, there, at least so far, it's not been a strong connection. So did they give you any sort of reasoning why you experienced those deaths? Because that's quite an intimate thing to experience. Intimate's not the right word. You know, a tragic thing to experience the death of a child. I mean, death is tragic for most people at any time, but the death of a child seems to be, I don't know, doubly as tragic. Did they say why you chose to experience that? Well, Yes. You know, like I was talking about the tree, no matter how you shift around the tree, you get different points of view. So it's almost like you get different reasons why something happened. You know what I mean? This makes sense. But this over here makes sense, too. So one thing that makes a lot of sense is that through those experiences, I, when I was working with mothers who had lost their children and helping bring their children through, I knew I'd been there. So I feel like all of those experiences that I've had when I talk to people, it's like, yeah, I've been there. I know what it's like and I'm okay. I'm happy. And that's a hard thing for most people that I've talked to, to understand that you could be happy after you lose a child. Um, I do, you know, I can't talk. I do talk to my son. He doesn't go by his name in this lifetime. He goes by a different name from a different lifetime in, in heaven. And we speak of it as heaven. They're all in heaven. Heaven's a big place where you want it to be. Um, so in the portal, through the portal, yeah. oh man, so many stories. So eight years worth of stories, but there are a group that changes a little bit. Like Abraham Lincoln was there for a while. Abraham Lincoln also incarnates according to him he was steve's dad in this lifetime his adopted father so they're constantly reincarnating together before that he said he had a lifetime after his abraham lincoln lifetime he had a lifetime in peru 
And he said they were poor, but he was happy. He said his life as Abraham Lincoln was not the happiest life. And uh, he had a very low-key, happy life. And anyway, we talked. He was around for a few years. And then, when is it? It's been only about four or five months that he said, okay, I'm going back to Earth. I have a birth, so B-E-R-T-H. But it's also B-I-R-T-H. I have a birth <laughs> on Earth. And so I'm going back. So I haven't heard from him. So somebody else steps in and there are others who step in and take his place. Okay. So you're talking about uh, the father, Steve's father, who was Abraham Lincoln. He was saying he's coming back. He he has a birth. That's who you said was coming yeah, back. He's, yeah. He's probably been born already. Well, you know, my experience with that, a lot of people say that if you're incarnated, you know, you can't talk to the soul or the spirit or, or, or the higher self of the person in spirit. But my mother reincarnated. She died when I was about 16 and she reincarnated and she's a family member. And I had a very, probably the clearest experience I've had with spirit with her when my best friend committed suicide. At around the time that she was found, I was in the shower and I had this vision of mum who came to tell me something. And I said, look, I'm too busy. I don't have time to talk. I'll call you back. <laughs> but at that time, my family member was already, you know, she was already incarnated as, as the family member. I think she was probably about six or five at the time. So you can still talk to the soul, like, you know, even though they're living out another earthly life, in my experience. Yeah. Yeah, mine is that when they're asleep, we can have conversations just like I do with anybody else, but they don't necessarily remember them when they're awake. And uh, it was helpful sometimes when I would work with people who had a family member who was, um, you know, dealing with some kind of senility or coma or something to be able to share with them. But I have found that they don't recall consciously the conversations we have, although they can be very detailed and very true to form. But at some level, I assume that they percolate to the surface. The little girl has no memory of this. She has absolutely no memory of who she is or she doesn't know anything about this. And right. uh, people have said to me, are you going to tell her who she is? And I said, when the time's right. But um, she needs to live her life and she needs to be the identity she is without knowing that she was her, you know, related to this person that all her family knows. So, um, yeah, so she has no memory. But I was talking to what how, I would how say. How old was she? How old, how old was that little girl when you were talking to the mother? About six, mother? about six, five or six. Yeah. And see, I think up until a certain age, um, until a certain age, there's a lot of flexibility uh, that goes on. I had uh, a guy that, according to him, I have no validation of this because it's private information, although I know who he is, who got into a conversation with Steve and I because he knew Steve. And he said that he had been, he thought he was dying. He was intubated. He'd gotten COVID. And he was sedated and intubated. And so we had... Oh my God, we had extensive conversations. We just had long conversations. And he he actually said that he was looking for Steve because he wanted to laugh at him and in hell because he hated him. But we had 
long conversations and we worked it all out. And then he had a miraculous recovery and he was so happy because that's what he wanted. He wanted to be back with his wife. And then he said he would continue to talk with us, but it was always when he was either asleep or just in a really relaxed state, which is, you know, which is the way that I personally can communicate with people who are incarnated now. And I understand what you're saying about talking to your mother who, uh, you know, is in that flexible, very early childhood state. And uh, we'd have conversations periodically after that. He finally gave up. He said, I tried to tell them what happened and they called me crazy. They said, you're just getting senile, old man. And so he said he finally gave up because when we talked to him when he was in this coma, he was excited about coming back to earth and making changes and helping people see that we really live. But when he came back, I mean, it's like having a profound near-death experience. You're in an environment where people aren't going to accept it and you just give up. So he remembered the conversations that he had with you and Steve when he was in the coma. When he, he remembered came. enough. He remembered mm -hmm. enough. Yeah, and people Not thought he was as great. detailed as as I remember them. Yeah, but he remembered enough when he came back to know that he had gone to heaven. He'd met Steve right. and me and somebody, and uh, to be able to say that. Yeah. Not necessarily the intricacy of our conversations, and so he continued to talk to us for months. It was during his sleep periods, and he'd be like, "She wants me to go here and there, and all I want to do is stay home and be at rest." You know, and I don't know why I came back here. And uh, anyway, I haven't heard from him in months. And so I, he finally said, I just give up. You know, I'll be going back to heaven soon. And when I do, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. Because they don't worry about it when they're in heaven. Yeah. No. And this is don't. my understanding, which I think is really important. And, and they keep repeating it over and over. So you're always where you are. So you're talking to your mother. You're talking to her where she is. Because... You're just where you are at the moment. Have you ever not been where you are? I mean, people think they're not where they are if they're not in their body, but then you're where you are. And even people that go to heaven, they have these flash memories, a zillion memories. They're still there. And they're just experiencing all these things, but that's where they are. So you're always where you are. I mean, it's just the way it is. You're always in today. You're always in the moment. And so the way they explain it to me in heaven, and of course, I'm not sure that I can understand it completely at the moment, but anytime I want to talk to somebody, they're there like that. We're all connected and they're there in the moment and we talk. Um, but what they've explained to me is, now this is my story. I don't know that everybody has the same story, but what I look for is logic, synchronicity, consistency. And how they explain it to me is that we're all human. We all see ourselves as human. If we were not human, when we came back to Earth, it would be like a video game that you're playing and you go into it brand new. If you haven't been playing it through hundreds of lifetimes, you know, you'd be hitting it brand new. You wouldn't, you'd just be clueless. And so we've all had these many, many lifetimes to develop our personality, our interactions with others around us. And what you do, what they say is you come back to heaven, you make your meal while you're on heaven because you're mixing it up on heaven. I mean, in, on earth, you're mixing it up and you're creating new experiences. You get to heaven, you digest your meal, you eat your meal. 
basically you have your memories, your dreams, your thoughts, and you can live happily with them. You just forget about that life because it doesn't matter anymore because nobody, you can't talk to anybody on earth. Nobody is listening to you. And then when it's time to come back, as they say, you pick up your backpack full of issues and you jump down the chute, you know? And so you bring your issues back to life. But if you didn't come back to earth, if people weren't reincarnating, if whether it's on earth or somewhere else, but we're dealing with the earth vibration here. So other you know, beings could be dealing in a different story. Then uh, it's like a video game. This is the video game we're playing. Some could be playing some over here, over here, over here, but this is one we're playing. And when you come back to earth and mix it up again, when you stay in heaven, after a while, you exhaust your meal. It's like you've digested it. You've gone laying on the beach with that handsome young dude a hundred times and now you're sick of it. And so you need to come back to earth to get new experience because it's the nature of God energy of soul energy to always want to grow and expand. And so you need to come back to earth to get more light. Otherwise, as they say, the lights in heaven would go out because you're not bringing back more light. So you go back to earth to get more experience, to get bake more bread, as they say, to bring back to heaven. And, uh, and so it's very, very important how we're treating the earth because if people understood that what you leave behind, you're going to inherit. You know, this is your rental. Leave it in good condition because you're going to come back and pick up in the same world where you left off. And you're going to inherit what you left behind you for your children. You're going to be your children that are going to inherit it. And that if people understood this, they would be a little more careful about how they're treating Mother Earth and the future of their own children who will be them. And it's absolutely necessary that we keep having these experiences. And what they have told me in their history, in the story, uh, and this is very new to me through the circle and even new in the time that I've been with them because they didn't want to lay too much on me at once, was that once, at least in our group, our soul energy originated on Nibiru, which was a planet circling the sun that uh, was actually a planetary system because it was large asteroids that were clung together, sort of. Uh, and they destroyed that planet in a long, long time ago. It's now just the asteroid belt. And then... All of them died and went to heaven, except a small group that became the Anunnaki and went into space. And they became space travelers and they changed their own, modified their own DNA. They were technically, you know, advanced. And eventually they came back to Earth about the time that Earth was ripe for new life, you might say, for uh, human life. And they created the humans out of the existing hominids, which is really out of the ape family in order to work for them. And eventually they left, there's a whole story about that. But what I was told was that your soul energy, which is, you're not really a thing, your soul energy is a constant stream, it's your history. It's basically your history, your individual history and your group history, that the soul energy uh, needed to reincarnate periodically. So they had to find a place to reincarnate. 
they went through the universe looking for places and they didn't find very good ones. So sometimes you might have to reincarnate in a life form that's not very conducive to where you had the achievement that you had made because your soul energy is what really controls you and your story. And it's really about that. Uh, and so it's like your body, as you know, is your avatar that you know you use to gain experience and to learn through. And uh, and so when the the new modern humans were created, they jumped on that opportunity, my group anyway, to incarnate in that group back in the same solar system. And so they had all this previous experience from having been on Nibiru and these other planets. Whereas a lot of the humans that were created, because there were so many of them, were basically at that point, and I never understood this before, why people would talk about young souls and old souls, because I thought everybody was, <laughs> everybody's the same. I think it's just experience. And that, so a lot of new souls were created at that time because the ape families had a group soul. And so humans have an individual soul history and it's not as fluid as with the animal souls which just you know are very fluid kind of a group soul and so there had to be some contribution of history of soul history or soul energy to these newly created modern humans in order to give them a story that would allow them because they weren't they were created physically but they did not have the background to understand the Anunnaki, what they were being told. And so they were treated horribly, like pack animals. And so through the contribution of the soul energy, they began to create their own history. I think of it like a plant, you know, you, you cut something off it, put it in water till it grows roots, put it in dirt, and you've got a new plant. I think of it kind of the same way. Yeah, amazing. Stephanie, it's been a joy and fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing so much. I'll, I think I'll cut this into two. I think I'll yeah, cut this into two because we talked a lot about reincarnation and Steve and then we got into earth changes. I'll, I'll cut it into two and, and put up two videos and, yeah, I'll see what I'll, I'll do with it. Thank you so much for sharing with us on the show. It was wonderful to talk to you, Karen. Karen. Remember to say Karen and not Karen. So thanks again for listening and watching. It's been fascinating chatting with uh, Stephanie. I'm going to get her. We're going to do it again. She, she gave me a reading by Steve about some different past lives we'd all had together, which was interesting, after the show. And uh, she kept talking, well, he kept talking through her. And I was thinking, oh, it's a shame I didn't record any of that because it's just fascinating what he was saying. Just really really interesting so I'm, I'm going to get her to come into the inner sanctum this year even though i'm booked out i'll do a special show with her with stephanie and we'll um get steve talking do you want that what questions do you have i said to her that if i had any questions for him it would be about how technology evolves in the future and how it dovetails with you know working with the earth instead of against the earth and working with humanity and instead of against humanity not that technology works against humanity look i'm using a technology to talk to you and it's totally working for me <laughs> but uh yeah just i'd like to know 
future of technology. Maybe you can enlighten us about that. Yeah, lots more to chat about. So thanks again for listening and watching and check out the book Awakened by Death and I will catch you next time. Bye for now.